Good morning to you. We're in uh, lesson nine in our series in uh, the book of Judges. You remember that the title, at least the one I finally landed on for last week, was When Less is More. My title for this week is When More is Less. And I think you'll see why that will uh, prove to be the case in a little bit. It wasn't too long ago, a year or two ago, when uh, we began to notice a faint odor uh, as we were walking through the, the playroom uh, that we have. The playroom is, is on our way out the door, and as you come in, you walk into the playroom. And Jeanette and I began to say to each other, something doesn't smell right in here. And, and uh, as time went on, that smell became more and more distinct. And, and, and so we said to ourselves, there's got to be something wrong in this room. And finally, I was looking through the, the kids' toys, and, and you know the kids have these plastic stoves and things that they play with, and I looked in the plastic refrigerator. There it was, a cup of milk. Yeah, I've been there for weeks. I knew I smelled something wrong. Oh, it's a great relief to get rid of that and, and to get back to something normal. Now you're saying, what in the world does that have to do with this text? You know, as you, as you work your way through the text and you get to the passage where we are, something begins to smell wrong. And, and all of a sudden you're saying, this this doesn't really feel right. Last week, you know, it was great, the victory that God gave to Gideon and those 300 people, but something just starts to stink in this chapter. And so it does. So let's see if we can find out what that cup of milk uh, might possibly be. You remember Judges chapter 6 where we were introduced to Gideon, not exactly the mighty man of valor at that moment that uh, he was uh, referred to uh, by the angel of the Lord, but he was a man who was fearful, who was treading out, threshing the grain in, in a wine press, not the place that you normally do, but it was because the Midianites had overrun uh, Israel and every seemed like every harvest time they would show up again and, and they would just literally clean the, the, the country out uh, they would steal the cattle, they would take their wine and their grain and everything. And, and so Israel was just terribly impoverished because of that. And uh, Gideon was trying to preserve what little grain there was by, by threshing it in, in a place that was kind of out of sight. And uh, it was through a sequence of events there that Gideon became convinced that the person speaking to him was the angel of the Lord and that he indeed had called him to deliver his people, the Israelites, from their uh, bondage to the Midianites. You remember that God then had uh, a Gideon uh, tear down his father's altar that was for Baal and the Asherah, the pole that was beside it, he was to offer a bull as a sacrifice on a new altar on that place, and he was to use the wood of the Asherah pole as the firewood. You, you would say, that's a real in-your-face to Baal. And, and it was a public declaration uh, of the fact that God alone is God and that Gideon had placed his trust in him. So then God said to, uh, to uh, Gideon that he was... Uh, going to send him out to battle. And uh, so you remember the spirit came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and uh, people came from a number of the, the tribes until there was about 32,000 that had gathered there to go to battle. But Gideon uh, was, uh, was needing a little confirmation so he put out the fleece twice. And, and then God knowing that Gideon was going to really need help by the time this battle plan was put into motion, because it was going to go from 32,000 to 300 soldiers without weapons. So he, uh, he has them go down to the camp of the Midianites, and there they overhear the dream of, uh, uh, of the uh, one uh, Midianite soldier. And the other uh, soldier interprets that dream and said, man, we're cooked. We are cooked. This is all over. 
It occurred to me later, by the way, how many Midianites had that same dream that night? I mean, we, we only hear of one, but, but suppose the whole Midianite camp had that same dream or the interpretation. It would be a pretty scary thing to be going to battle the next day, or I should say that night, uh, knowing what they did. But you remember that God used those 300 men, now unarmed so far as we know, 300 men with a clay jar, a torch that was concealed within that jar, and a, and a trumpet or a shofar, uh, a sheep horn, that they blew. They stayed in their positions around the camp. The Midianites assumed they were surrounded, which they were, but they assumed they were surrounded by thousands and thousands of soldiers. They were surrounded by 300 men unarmed. The Midianites turned their swords on each other, and there was a great massacre at the hand of the Midianites themselves. And then they begin to flee. They want to work their way out of that valley, back down the Jordan River Valley, and they want to head up the valley that goes up uh, the Jabbok back to their uh, land, which would be in Jordan, uh, and, and get out of there. And uh, so that's where we leave the story off. And, and let me just give you a quick overview of what takes place in, in our text it's almost a parenthesis in a way, but in verse 23 of chapter 7 through verse 3, you have this account of Gideon getting help um, so that, so that uh, he can do the, uh, the job better in his mind. And so uh, there's this event then that comes up when Ephraim comes along to help He's unhappy, I should say. The tribe is unhappy, and they express their discontent. Why didn't you call sooner? We would have been here to help, and, and so on. And they're really pressing Gideon on this point. And we'll talk about that a bit in a minute, along with Gideon's response. But the help are not happy. And the real question that we've got to ask is, was that help even necessary? Was it wrong to have that help there in the first place? And then you move to the account of, of two cities and, and of two kings uh, that really uh, makes up uh, the bulk of our text as you look at it in, in chapter 8, verse 4 through verse 21. Here are these two kings that have not yet been caught, Zeba and Zalmunna. They have, they have crossed the river and they are heading back to their, to their uh, homeland and uh, Gideon is in hot pursuit. But in order to reach them, he needs some food and support from the cities that are there, Israelite cities, Succoth and, and um, good gravy, my mind went blank, Succoth and Penuel, uh, which, by the way, in some translations is Peniel. It's the same city, just depending on how it's spelled or pronounced. But these two Israelite cities basically say, we're not giving you bread. We don't, we don't know that you're going to win. Look at you got 300 guys. We saw those 15,000 guys head through town. We're going to wait and see who comes out on top. Then we'll talk about bread. And you remember Gideon is uh, madder than a wet hen. And so he says, when I come back, the victor, you guys are going to pay. So then they, the story continues with the capture of those two kings. They are brought back to those two uh, towns, and, and, uh, and he takes, uh, Gideon takes his vengeance on the town, uh, uh, the one town. The men, uh, the leaders, the 77 leaders, are publicly whipped with uh, the briars, the, the thorns of the area. And the other one, uh, Penuel, the tower is torn down, and the men, men of the city are killed, or rather interesting dilemma and then following that you have this offer on the part of the Israelites for Gideon to be their king and indeed for Gideon to be the first of a dynasty of kings that would rule over Israel and Gideon piously uh, rejects that offer the question is the sincerity of his declining of that offer of position and then you have the last events of, of Gideon's life, his going home, marrying many wives, having many children, and the, the great blowout of the text where it really starts to stink, folks, in the, in the cup of milk terms. 
If you didn't smell it before now, when you got that ephod and it's set up in the very city where he tore down the altar to Baal, and now people are all, are worshiping this ephod instead of God, we've gone full circle. Something we know by this point, something is desperately wrong. And the question is, how long has it been wrong? And I would like to suggest most of our chapter, in fact, all the way back, I think, to seven. And verse 23. So let's take a look at this then and see if we can understand what God has for us. I call this sections 723 through 83, help arrives, but does it help? There are these nagging questions, and you have to say to yourself, having come out of chapter 7, when God has thinned down an army from 32,000 to 300, and all these people have been sent home, at least back to their tents. They've sent, been sent away from the battle. What's changed? That's my question. What has changed that all of a sudden now, now that they are on the run, why is it that all these uh, extra people are now being brought in, including Ephraim, who wasn't even involved in the origin, original call to war? Why is that the case? Uh, look then at, at, uh, at how this thing comes out, especially as it relates to Ephraim and Gideon. I mean, this is really, I suppose you'd call this a male thing. But, but here is Gideon and, and, and some representative of Ephraim, and they're in each other's face, and, you know, they're flexing their muscles and, and whatever. <laughs> this unity of the tribes of Israel is not doing particularly well at this point. And so here's Ephraim all ready to fight because he hasn't been called sooner. Now, I might as well go ahead and take you to chapter 12. You ought not to think very highly of Ephraim, especially in the book of Judges. When you get to chapter 12, when Jephthah goes to battle, Ephraim comes with the same argument. And he say, wait a minute, wait a minute, how come you have this battle and you didn't let us be a part of it? And Jephthah's answer was, I did call you, and you didn't answer. You left me out there hanging on my own. Yes, I went out to fight without you because you were too cowardly to show up. Now, when it's obvious I'm winning, you'd like to be in on the action. And, and, and now the Ephraimites go to battle with Jephthah, and there's bloodshed within Israel. All of that's to say... I wouldn't give too much credit to, to Ephraim and his argument here because if he'd have been invited, he wouldn't have shown. If he'd have been invited and, and Gideon would have said, now all those guys who are afraid, go home, they'd have gone home. I don't think there's much to commend about Ephraim. But you see, they're in on the, on the, on the tail end of this thing when the Midianites are on the run. And, and uh, so you have to say, well, then why in the world did Gideon call them? Gideon was trying to cut off the retreat of the Midianites who had to come down the Jordan River Valley and then go up the, the Jabbok and, and work their way back up the pass until they got back into their own place, basically go back the way they came. So Gideon's plan was, let's cut them off at the pass, so to speak, and let's block their exit, and, and then we can keep them from, from making their escape. And in theory, that means that we would kill all of those who came on the attack. It's interesting in the account of what actually happened, that all the text tells us, all the author tells us, is that two people were killed. I, uh, there's 15,000 who are going to keep going. We know that because Gideon's going to deal with those later on. So we don't really know how many people were captured or killed other than two men. And those were two of what we might call the generals. Different words used for these uh, two guys who, who are put to death uh, in our text, Oreb and Zeb. They are seemingly generals in this, uh, leaders, but not kings. Then when you get to uh, Zeba and, and, uh, and Zalmunna, uh, then you have two kings who are captured. So the, the contribution of Ephraim, so far as our text is concerned, is two guys, two generals who get captured and killed. 
And notice uh, that they, uh, their heads are presented to, uh, to Gideon as uh, the prize. So what's wrong with this thing? What, I mean, you have to say to yourself, why is this story here about Ephraim and, and his complaining about not being called sooner? Well, I think we can say from what we know in chapter 12 that Ephraim is just wrong. And why is he wrong? He's wrong because he wants in on the glory. I don't see any other way of taking it. And in fact, when you look at this this whole confrontation, that's what it's really about. It's about who gets the glory. And who are the two contestants? Ephraim and Gideon. Is that not right? It's who gets the credit for the victory. Well, that's a rather strange thing coming out of chapter 7, because what was the issue in chapter 7 when God thinned it down from 32,000 to 300? The issue was, God wants the glory. God's going to make it so impossible for men to win that nobody could take credit. And yet here you have Ephraim coming to help. And, and it's exactly the thing God was, was seeking to prevent by keeping the numbers few. That's why, in my opinion, it was wrong for Gideon. It is my opinion. I, I don't know whether you'll agree with me or not. Why would Gideon call these people? In effect, he reverses the very system that God set up to win the war. Let's suppose that some of the Midianites actually escaped. Let's just suppose that. Would that be the most terrible thing you ever could think of? Actually, it wouldn't be bad. Can you imagine being a Midianite going back... And explaining to your people how 135,000 troops were put on the run by 300 unarmed men. What, what that would say to my fellow Midianites was, I wouldn't mess with Israel because I wouldn't want to take on their God again. I don't want to see more than 300 the next time. I don't know what would happen. So frankly, if some escaped, I think it would have been good. And, and indeed, it seems as though some did. But, it, but there's this intensity on Gideon's part not to let them escape. Do we know why that was? We will. We will. The text tells us. And it's not really the purest of motivations, as, as we'll discover. Here's the problem. Ephraim, we can understand. It's all about ego. I want part of the glory, whatever. But Gideon's answer is really wimpy. Gideon should have been a politician. He missed his calling. He would have been elected for sure. He doesn't answer in truth. He does not confront Ephraim's sin. He should have said, now Ephraim, I've got a little story to tell you. I blew the trumpet and, and I summoned these people from Asher and Naphtali and so on. And if you'd have come, let me tell you what would have happened. God would have sent you home. Because this really isn't about men getting glory for victory in battle. This is about God getting the glory for what he does. So you see, Ephraim, it's not about you and your glory, and it's certainly not about me and my glory at all. It's about God. So pack up and head home, partner. And if you want to fight about it, then I just remind you, we 300 are still here. I mean... It's just that simple. But Gideon's answer is a sissy answer. It's like, you know, you're so much bigger and tougher than we are. We're, we're such wimps compared to you. Oh, you're big and strong. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the gleanings of Ephraim, what the leftovers, are so much greater than, than the IBS rights, which is my clan amongst those of Manasseh. You're just, you're just so much bigger and greater than us. Why would you even worry about it? It's, it's a weak answer because I don't think that Gideon had good cause for him showing up in the first place. And by the way, God's instructions ended in chapter 7. God's instructions ended in chapter 7. And aside from a couple of just side remarks that are, that are just kind of uh, casual add-ons about God, God's missing in chapter 8. Something has happened, and, and I have to, I might as well go ahead and say it. 
I'm not sure, but somewhere in, the, in this whole set of events, it seems to me the Spirit of God is gone too. The Spirit of God led Gideon to blow that trumpet. I don't see anything from that point on that would indicate the Spirit of God is, is who is energizing the decisions that are being made by Gideon from, from that point. Okay, let's look at the uh, two kings and the two cities in verses 4 through 21. And we'll talk first about Gideon's dealings with uh, Succoth and Penuel. Here are two Israelite cities on the eastern side of the Jordan, going up the Jabbok, it would seem, going up that pass that would be heading into Jordan, uh, but would be heading in the direction that the, that the Midianites have fled. So after this parenthesis, oh, oh, by the way, I have to add this. How many people went through uh, uh, Succoth and Penuel in their hot pursuit of the 15,000 Midianites who remained? 300. To which I asked the question, so where's tough guy Ephraim now? Here he is, taking the heads of these kings across the river and flexing his muscles, but there's still 15,000 guys to fight. Ephraim goes home. Because his ego's been pacified. Doesn't fit my idea of the model man. But anyway, let's get back to our story. So here they are. They're going through these two towns. And the 300 men are dog-tired. Is that any mystery? Not at all. They've been fighting. They haven't, they haven't stopped to cook a good meal. They've got the enemy on the run. They're hungry. Their supplies apparently are gone. They need to be revitalized. And what better place to do it than an Israelite city? So that's where the bread is sought. By the way, it's, it's not unlike David when he is being pursued by Saul. And he, remember, goes to the priest and he asks for bread and gets some of the sacred bread. And later on, when he is uh, there in the, uh, in the area close to Nabal and protecting his people and his crops, his, his sheep, I should say, that he asks for a gift that would sustain his men. And you remember Nabal tells him, no way. Uh, so the, it was not wrong for Gideon to ask for help from these cities, but they say no. And so you have to say, why? Now, here's the part that mystifies me. Isn't it obvious they were afraid? They were afraid. Look. The Ephraimites, they went back home and they live way over yonder across the river, Jordan. These guys live on the eastern side of the Jordan. If any retaliation is going to come from the Midianites, these cities are going to hear about it first. So you can understand how these two cities in the shadow of the Midianites are going to say to themselves, I'm not really sure that I want to do something that offends these Midianites. Uh, Otherwise, they may come and get me. So I'm saying they're acting out of fear. Shouldn't Gideon be able to empathize with that? Shouldn't Gideon be able to say, man, do I understand about weak knees and being a chicken? Man, I was there yesterday. I mean, here's the guy who is asking for, for, you know, these signs and whatever. His knees are knocking. And now he looks at his fellow Israelites who are acting out of fear. And it says, oh, what a terrible thing. What's wrong with you guys? And so he threatens. When he comes back with these two kings in his possession, he's going to clean their clock. Interestingly, and, and the, all the translations don't say it this way, but the, the expression is, when I return in peace. I think that's a key word, a key expression, in peace. Now, it implies, A, I've won the battle, and there is no war any longer, but the term in peace is a very specific legal term. Take you over to Second Samuel chapter 3. You remember when, uh, when uh, David is talking to Abner and they're trying to negotiate a treaty, as it were, between these two factions of Israelites? And Abner was the commander for, the, uh, for Saul and, and, and Abner saying, I can get all of the nation to come follow you. And uh, Joab, 
whose brother had been killed by Abner in war. The text is clear. In battle, uh, Abner had killed uh, Joab's brother. But Joab kills Abner in peace. Three times in that chapter, it says that David has brought Abner to his headquarters in peace, meaning he has just, as it were, a white flag that, that, that he is under a peace treaty with him that he will not be harmed, and Joab takes his life. So, here's my point. When Gideon says, I'm going to return to you in peace, and deals with them as though they were in war, that's a very serious thing. And, and that's going to happen. So he goes off. He's angry at the cities. He goes on to, off to Penuel. And, and Penuel has the same exact thing to say. When, you know, why would we side with you? Why would we give aid to you when we know the Midianites are bigger and stronger than you are? And so he threatens to come and he's going to tear down their tower when he returns. Okay, so now he's going to deal with... Uh, the the, uh, the the kings and so he makes his way off in hot pursuit for the two kings who have escaped his uh, gr- grasp and they are Zeba and Zalmunna. So he goes on and we don't know exactly where these cities are. What we do know, I think, from the description is that he may have taken a route. And with 300 guys, it would be easier than with a large army. It seems to me that he's taken a backward route, sort of a back road, if you would, through a pass. And these 15,000 guys now are back on what seems to be their home turf. And so they're getting to feel safe. Can you imagine these guys after what they saw saying, whew, that was close. And, And apparently they're in some kind of a valley or wherever where it looks like they're safe. But Gideon and his men come from a back way, from an, from an unexpected way, and they fall upon them unexpectedly. And again, there's another route. And they flee, but the two kings escape. And Gideon pursues those two kings and captures them. And we don't know how many of the others were killed, but now he has those two kings in his possession. And he takes them back now to the two places... Because remember they said, do you have them? Actually, the the text says, do you have their hands? Now, in some uh, way, administrations, they literally cut off their hands like the others cut off the heads or a benzeb to bring back to prove that you had them. They may have just come back with their hands and not bothered to carry the whole body. But he brings the live thing and says, okay, here they are. I told you I was coming back. So he gets the names of the 77 leaders uh, of Succoth, and he and he does exactly what he said. But the interesting thing is that when he then uh, goes uh, to Penuel, he tears down their tower, as he said. But the text goes on to say he killed the men of the city. He kills fellow Israelites in a way very similar to the way Joab killed Abner. When he has come back now, the victor, so he comes back in peace. And he kills his fellow Israelites because of his anger for what's happened. And that's when we begin to understand what underlies some of these things that have been taking place. After he's dealt with these two cities, he says to these two kings, When you were at Tabor, remember Mount Tabor, the ice cream cone-shaped mountain? Uh, that actually was not involved by, by at least this account. It was not involved in the battle that Gideon did. It was close, but it is not said to be a part of that battle. He said, when you were at Tabor, what were the men like who you killed? And the answer was, they were men with a royal disposition, just like you. What does it mean to have a royal disposition? Well, remember I suggested earlier in the book of Judges when, when the victor uh, took the, uh, the men that he had defeated and cut off their, their thumbs and their big toes and he had them seated around his table. And I said, that's the Canaanite way of dealing with your enemies. They should have been killed. 
That was the Canaanite way. There was, a, there was a Canaanite or a pagan way in which rulers dealt with people, and one, it was harsh. And so it seems to me that these two kings, as they watch Gideon deal with his fellow Israelites in a harsh and severe way, they said, well, come to think of it, they acted just like you. Arrogant, proud, and mean. And Gideon, Gideon's response was, huh, boy, I'm glad I never knew those guys. No, he says, those were my brothers. I mean, my blood brothers. These were the sons of my mother. Now, that's a rather interesting thing to say, isn't it? Now you begin to get some light on the subject. And, and, and now Gideon says to them, if you had let them go and not kill them, I would have let you go. Would that have been the right thing to do? No. What he's saying is that somehow the offense that you've done to my brothers in war is so offensive to me, there is no way I wouldn't have come to you no matter how far you ran. I would have come and I would have had your blood because that's what I was after. And if my two Israelite cities don't help me get my revenge, then I'll take some of it out on them. That's the only way I can see this. Why would the author put this in? To tell us that it's Gideon's brothers who were killed at Tabor. So somewhere along the line, there was a battle at Tabor. His brothers were there in war. Now, remember Gideon tells us in chapter 6, I should say he tells the angel of the Lord, I'm a nobody, my father's a nobody, and I'm the youngest there. My impression is that Gideon is like David when his older brothers are sent to war. Remember with Saul? David was too young, so he gets to stay home and keep the flocks. And he gets to take a little cheese and whatever to the battlefront to supply his brothers and the commanders. But he's not engaged in the war. Somehow, it seems to me, Gideon is the youngest one, wasn't yet able to go and fight. But his brothers were killed. And this thing has been stewing in his soul in a way that none of us saw in chapter 6 or 7. All of a sudden, chapter 8, and all this zeal that's taking place to go deep into enemy territory to get these two kings, and you begin to say, Aha! Something's working here that is not just war. It's retaliation, and it has to do with family. And it's just like, in my opinion, it's just like Joab whose brother is killed by Abner in war, who now is going to kill Abner in peace. It's not the same, folks. And David makes it clear he has no part of that bloodletting. But here's Gideon, our, 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 our cowardly man from earlier places. And now here he is. This guy is one mean dude. And when these two kings talk about these guys that they've been that they killed on Mount Tabor, they say he's just as mean as you are. That, that's just an amazing transformation. It's like Jekyll and Hyde in two chapters. Seven, there's this meekness in whatever. Chapter eight, there's a meanness that is just, in my opinion, not very explainable. So he, uh, he by the way, remember he he says to his his young son who is with him, kill these guys. His young son was like his father in that regard. He was fearful, didn't draw his sword. And, and, and isn't this just a male moment now? Here's Zeb and Zalmunna, and he says, uh, you know, hey, you're the big man. Go ahead, take us out yourself. Which I think means, I don't want this little kid poking at me with a sword. You're going to do it, do it right, and take me out now. So here you got this macho moment. He, he does the, the boys in, and, and now it's over. Or so it seems. This is the point at which the royal offer comes that we deal with in verses 22 through 32. The offer is, be our king. And, and notice now it's an offer not only to be Israel's king, but to have a dynasty. And your son after you, and his son, and so on. So here is Israel seeking a king. If Samuel is the author of Judges, as he may well be, You've got to be thinking about 1 Samuel chapter 8, do you not? When, when the people are going to say to Samuel, we want a king. 
who will lead us into battle and give us the victory. We want a king. And God says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. Now, when you look at this, there's, a, there's an inclination because we really desperately want to save Gideon from the bad boy that he is. We want to say, ah, oh, Gideon got it right. He's right. He's saying, oh, no, only God is going to be your king, which theologically is absolutely right. It's the right answer. The question is, do his actions conform to his answer? Let me give you several things to think about. The two kings that he puts to death, as he describes the brothers that he killed, how does he describe them? He says their demeanor, some text, I noticed the NIV said princes. My text, or the NASB at this point says kings. He said they had the demeanor of a king just like you. These two guys looked at Gideon like a king because he acted like one. And that suggests to me that the reason why the Israelites invited David, uh, Gideon to be their king was because he was already acting like one. And frankly, they were willing to look the other way. If they could get safety and protection from him that way, fine. They were willing to do it. So he acted like a king. Secondly, he had a harem. Now, I know it's not called that, but look, folks, when you read the account as it goes down and it talks about he has many children and many wives, by whatever name you want to call it, that's a harem. Regular people don't have that many wives and that many kids. And I don't know how long he could live on that gold, remember, but, but he spent the gold on the ephod, so it's not there. He's got a lot of overhead. He's living like a king. He acts like one. He lives like one. Here's what caught me. Oh, by the way, and, and he collected a tax. I mean, this, this thing of taking from the spoils of war is a sort of a kingly thing to do. And, of course, there's the ephod thing. Here's the real stickler. His son, who is going to be prominent in our next chapter, in chapter 9, his name is Abimelech. Any guesses as to what that means? Abi, my father. Melech, king. My father is king. Woo, that's kind of interesting, don't you think? After everything else that's said, I guess what I'm saying is he stayed on theologically safe turf. But practically speaking, it looks like he's really having the benefits of what he denies. At least many people would feel that way. And I guess I would have to say... Uh, I would be among them. That whole issue of the ephod is probably worthy of a message in and of itself. But you know that the, uh, that the Midianites were people who had gold earrings. I'm not going down that trail. And, and, and th so they took the earrings from these guys. And uh, it's not unlike the Egyptians, by the way, who had their earrings and gold implements, uh, which were made into a golden calf. Which leads me to say, Gideon starts like Moses. Not me, Lord, somebody else. Who am I? But he ends like Aaron. Let me make you a golden image for you to worship. Isn't that sad? Start like Moses, end like Aaron. Sad thing. But this ephod, we don't really know for certain exactly what that ephod was like. We do know, of course, about the ephod, some things about the ephod that the priest wore. Now, this is a real hee-haw. If you've got a sense of humor, you'll, you'll, you'll laugh. Bill will laugh. Nobody else will. But what was the ephod for? What was the ephod's functional purpose? To know God's will. Don't you find that funny? Here's Gideon, who can't seem to get it straight. Now, let me see. Let me see if I got this right. You've told me. And you've made it very clear you're to deliver Israel by me. Could we do this again so I'm sure that you're going to do Israel by me? Here's the guy who's going to create something so that everybody will know for sure what God's will is. 
And this guy's tripped all over himself. Of anybody in the world who wants to make an ephod, do a golden calf, man. Just don't do an ephod. But we don't know exactly what that looks like. Some would say it was woven into a garment that was worn, maybe, or that it was actually an image that had a a, a fixed golden uh, uh, cloak around it or whatever. We don't. Nobody knows exactly. What we do know is this. Gideon had it made. Gideon took it to his hometown, the very place where he had torn down the Baal altar. And he installs it there, and Israel plays the harlot after that image. Is that not just, just you just saying, of all the things, why this? How I end that way? But that's the way it went. Now, let's talk about some things by way of application. I don't think that we can really appreciate or understand our text without going back in our minds to Deborah and Barak in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and particularly chapter 5. Why? Because in chapter 5, Deborah, in in, in this prophetic piece that she has written, she clearly emphasizes that it's about God. The glory doesn't go to men in, in the final analysis. If any human person is going to get the honor, it's jail for the tent peg incident. But basically, this is an account that says it was all God. And even in the, in the, in the emphasis that you have in chapter 5 about the leaders leading, who gets praised because the leaders lead? God does. Because, if I can say it this way, Chapter 5 is theology. Chapter 5 is good theology. And what it does is it allows you to go back and to look at the past and what God has done from a theological frame of reference. The problem with the past is that sometimes we go in and we make it the good old days and we sort of revise, you know, a little bit of revisionist mental history. And we sort of revise things so that somehow we come out better. Have you ever noticed that your insurance agent will tell you, if you're in an automobile accident, don't say anything at the scene. Why? Chances are you'll tell the truth. Oh, my goodness, I didn't see that stoplight. And whatever. And by the time you thought about it a day or two, it's like, you know, I think maybe that guy was... And and now all of a sudden it wasn't so much your fault at all. That's the way we can look at what God does. We can look back at God's deeds and somehow look at Gideon. Now, in chapter 8, it's somehow, or late 7, it's about glory for men when it's clear it was about glory for God. So, chapter 5 gives us this theological framework that says, folks, when you think about what God has done, think about it in these terms. And don't forget it. It was all about God. It's all about His glory. It's all about the worship of Him. That's what many of the Psalms will do for us. It's what theology does for us. And uh, it was a good thing. When you come to Judges chapter 8, you don't find any poem, do you? Gideon needed a good poet. He needed a good poet to see right there beside him. And he's singing this song as they're marching after the enemy, saying, it was God, it was God, it was all about God. But it's not anymore for him. Said, as you look at chapter 5, how far Israel has fallen. This is the last time, it says Israel had rest for 40 years, the last time you'll find rest in the book of Judges. There is a way in which we think about Judges in terms of the cycles that are described in in chapter 2, and we think those cycles go on and on. They don't. They don't. It goes from bad to worse. And what we're going to see in the chapters that come following is it just goes worse and worse. It's going downhill, and it's just getting sucked down the drain. We come to our text, and whereas previously in the book of Judges, it was the Canaanites who were introducing people to idolatry, now it's an Israelite who's introducing his people to idolatry. Jephthah's going to come along. And now the oppression is not from the outside, it's from inside. From one who's taken the leadership in Israel. It's all getting from bad to worse. And uh, so this 
I guess that's why I'm saying, if you don't smell the foul odor of chapter 8, then this ought to help kind of improve your nasal passages and get your sniffer going, because these are not good days for Gideon or for Israel. So I take it that the ephod incident was actually something that is the result of a number of bad decisions, a number of sins that led up to it, And and for us, normally as we read it, we would probably be willing to cut Gideon slack until we got to the ephod. And then we got to say, I'm sorry, Gideon, (laughs) I've been sticking up for you, but I I can't do it anymore. You've crossed the line. I think he crossed the line sooner. I think he crossed the line when he called for help, when God had told him to go it alone. I think he crossed the line when he dealt with fellow Israelites as though they were Canaanites crossed the line. I think he crossed the line when he forgot it was God who was to get the glory, not men, not Ephraim, and not him. Crossed the line. And it wasn't until we get to that ephod that all of a sudden it all crashes in on us and we say, oh my goodness, what went wrong? A couple of things. One, decline. Decline comes more quickly than you may wish to know. I I look at at, at the fall of of individuals and the fall of nations like a roller coaster ride on six flags. You get in that roller coaster, it's been a little while, but you get on Big Ben or whatever, and you know, and and, and you you get on that little cart, and all of a sudden you hear this click, bang, and and the, the cogs in that thing catch you, and you go click, 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 and you go up that slow, steep incline until you reach the top. You notice how fast it is down? It's a lot faster than going up. It's easy to go down quickly. But the thing that scares me about this is, it's easy to go down and not even know it. That's one of the things that I see with Gideon, is I didn't recognize the telltale signs that were there when I should have. I didn't recognize initially when he's having this discussion with Ephraim, it didn't didn't occur to me, what in the world are you guys having this conversation for? It was already going south before the ephod. Decline happens quickly, and it often happens without us even knowing it. I, my last point there, I say prosperity often outlives piety. One of the things that you see in Phariseeism is Phariseeism tried to measure your spirituality by your checkbook, by your bank balance. And, and so if a guy was prosperous, that, that surely meant that he was spiritual. Israel, this is very early. As I read these accounts, this is very early in Gideon's, if you want to say it, rule as a judge over Israel. He rules for 40 years. There's prosperity for 40 years. They weren't pious for 40 years. My goodness, Gideon, he'd been lucky to make 40 days of piety. So it, it seems to me that you just see that, that we can be living in an age where there's a sort of hangover prosperity. And, and we look at that prosperity and we say, my God must be blessing us. Not necessarily. That may be the residue of his blessings in the past. And it may not say anything about our piety in the present. But someday that too will end. Leadership. Well, Jesus says to his disciples, there are two different kinds of leadership. There's the kind of leadership that the Gentiles have, and there's the kind of leadership that my disciples have. And it seems to me that Gideon was a far better leader as a coward than he was as an angry potentate. There is a different way in which men should lead. And his dealings with those two cities, in my opinion, were not godly leadership. Even his dealings with those two kings were not godly leadership. He should have dealt with them as God would have him deal with them rather than out of his own personal sense of a need to give vengeance to the blood of his brothers. Leadership is different uh, under God than it is with men. The problem of power. You know... And I'm going to add prosperity, because prosperity is just one form of power. If you've got money, you can do things. I don't know about you, but I I remember there have been times in my life when I I thought I had a bright idea for an invention one time, and it looked like that was really going to put me on smooth street. 
and fortunately, it didn't. The bumps are still there. But, but you know, many of us, I hate to say this, and I like you, you're my friend, so I'll say it of me too. Many of the sins I don't commit are because I can't afford them. <laughs> I mean, doesn't power and prosperity give you additional options at misconduct? And so there's a sense in which when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and I don't want to get down that trail right now, but there's a sense in which if you're agonizing about where you are and about the limited options you have, praise God. What God is telling you and what he's telling me is if I gave you more, you'd just get in more trouble. I'm giving you everything you can handle. And you better pray hard with that. Power is the opportunity to do wrong. And I guess what I see is here's Gideon. Now endued with power in days, he's a different man and he's acting in a different way and he's not acting in a way that pleases God. Certainly the ephod makes that clear. And as go the leaders, so go the nation. Gideon led the nation to idolatry. That is just such a tragic thing. No wonder that Satan sometimes puts leaders in his Sites. So I'm going to end with this thought. Sometimes more is less. Sometimes more prestige and reputation, popularity, power, success is really less. If less is more, that is, if less is the occasion for God to manifest himself through the weakness of men, then more may be less. And with Gideon, it was true. Having more power, having more courage, did not serve him well. So in this whole set of affairs that we find ourselves in, in terms of the economics of our nation, let's think about that. More may be less, less may be more. Father, we thank you for this text, and we simply ask that you would... Allow us to think about these things. I think about this thing with, with Gideon and, and this uh, thing he had about revenge for his brothers and how that somehow colored everything he did, even his cruelty to his fellow Israelites. So I think about the, the class that uh, Robert is, is doing, uh, a selective class on re- reconciling relationships. Father, I pray that you would help us not to have bitterness and and events of the past somehow haunt us in a way that is destructive to us and to others. Help us to take advantage of the opportunities and the instructions you have given us to reconcile ourselves to those who uh, we have offended or who have offended us. Help us to be people who are dependent upon you, not upon resources. Help us to give you the glory. Thank you for the Lord's table where every week we come back to the historical event of the cross and every time man strikes out and Jesus Christ is glorified. Thank you for that opportunity to give glory to you for the salvation you have achieved. If there's anyone here this morning who is not trusted in the Lord Jesus, we pray that they might acknowledge their sin and accept the payment that has been made through the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen.